Hey guys, welcome to another episode. This episode is going to be a very informative and fun episode. On this episode, we have Kimberly's glaucoma specialist with us. We have Kurt with us and uh, I am going to let Kimberly introduce our guest. Hope you enjoy. Hey guys, this is my ophthalmologist, um, Dr. Schwiso, and thank you so much for doing this. Um, this is going to be fun. I've been looking forward to this. No problem. Thanks for having me on, Kimberly. I'm really impressed. You, you really nailed the last name. It's not easy to do. <laughs> I'm going to have to remember that, though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, before we started recording, um, Kimberly's glaucoma specialist said that he knows my retina specialist. Um, so I will have to remember your last name so I can tell you Justin you say hey. So <laughs> You could probably even just say some guy from Green Bay. He might even know that. You never okay. know. Okay. <laughs> nice. Okay, so we're, I'm going to, this will be interview style, so we're just going to ask you questions, and you just let us know what the answers are. I'll do my best. <laughs> it's not Pressure's on. It's all good. <laughs> Can I take a pass if I... <laughs> if you want. I don't okay. care. Okay. <laughs> friend. All right. <laughs> okay, so when you entered college, did you have a different career path in mind? Uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I mean, when I entered college, I wasn't completely practice medicine, although, um, I took advantage of, uh, a program that was time called the medical scholars program. So it's not available anymore, but, uh, that was a really, it, that was a really, really nice, uh, program where, the, the medical school in Madison was trying to encourage in-state students to stay in the state uh, and, you know, basically just try to feed uh, some of the rural uh, medicine programs. So the idea was that if you fit certain criteria out of high school, you, it was based on class rank or GPA or ACT scores. Um, you could gain conditional acceptance in medical school. So I was I, I did well on my ACT, um, you know, sent in my application and was selected. So the idea was that if I maintained a certain grade point during undergrad at Madison, uh, I was guaranteed a spot in medical school. So uh, that, <laughs> that worked well. Um, I'd like to have gotten in, but uh, that certainly was nice to have that um, to have that spot reserved. But so I, I knew that medicine was a, a distinct possibility, but I, I kind of kept my options open. I was thinking maybe engineering architecture because I do uh, like those fields also. But, you know, in the end, uh, you know, going into going into medicine was, um, you know, kind of it didn't it, it, it did appeal to me. And I knew that there'd be a lot of options after medical school. So, um, you know, decided to go that route. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, I actually do have a question. So, did you decide that you wanted to do this, like, as a kid? Because I know some people, they're like, oh, ever since they were little, like, that they want to be, like, a doctor, or they want to be a nurse, or something like that. Like, what made you 
interested in learning about the eye? Yeah, you know, I, th I think it was, I, it's worth noting that my dad is an ophthalmologist also. Oh, you know, so, yeah. Nice. So he, that was, I can't deny that that was in the background my whole childhood. Um, it definitely was not force fed to me though. So, you know, I kind of knew that that's what my dad did. I knew what his lifestyle was. I knew that uh, he really enjoyed what he did um, and he really took a lot of pride in it. So, and it's kind of interesting um, there in, in most areas of medicine, there isn't a real high rate of succession. So you don't, you don't tend to get subsequent generations going into medicine uh, or at least following and right in their parents' footsteps, except for ophthalmology. Um, ophthalmology does actually have a very high rate of succession where you get multiple generations going into the same field. Um, so it's not on, you know, in, in my family, dad's an ophthalmologist. He started our practice. Uh, my older brother joined three years ahead of me. He's three years older than I am. He also went into ophthalmology and then I did too. So it, it's a lot of our patients and friends will comment like, Oh, wow, that's incredible. How unique it's actually not that unique. Um, I could name off the top of my head probably four other practices, maybe five, uh, that you know had multiple family members go into the same business. Some of them ophthalmologists, some optometrists, but um, but it's pretty common. And I think it's because in this line of work, you it, it's it the nature of the work I think appeals to a lot of people. You get to do some hands-on work. You get to do surgery. You also get to know your patients longitudinally, you know, so you'll get to know, like Kimberly, I've been treating you now for, I was looking it up, treating you now for 11 years, 10, 10 years. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's really fun to get to know people for the of their lives. So that's got that primary care aspect to it. Um, but the, the hours aren't overly burdensome either. So it's got a lot of upside. And I think for me, my dad never said, Hey, you have to be an ophthalmologist, but I knew that he liked what he did and um, you know, that later in life, I think played into my decision. Okay. Uh, yeah. But even in medical school, I was, you know, I don't know if it's just kind of a rebellious nature or what, but I, I never planned on being an ophthalmologist. I, I went into medicine thinking, all right, um, I'm going to do anything but ophthalmology. And I knew I wanted to do surgery, <laughs> but I thought, I thought, all right, I'll, I'll be a general surgeon. I wanted to be a really good trauma surgeon um, early in my third year. And I thought, all right, that really flipped the switch. I want to do what this guy does. Um, and I think as an as a medical student, you know, you, it's really intoxicating. You spend the first two years basically studying, you know, you study, study, study. It's constant test cycle. So in your, the start of your third year, you get to start doing rotations where you actually get out and get some experience and work with patients. And, uh, you know, one of your first rotations might be emergency medicine. Maybe you get to suture a couple lacerations. That's really fun. So you start thinking about that. Or you're going to do a surgery rotation where you might be closing a couple of wounds or like I did, you do trauma surgery. You get to put in some chest tubes and central lines. And a lot of that is it's just really great to finally get some hands-on experience so i kind of zeroed in on general surgery initially um and had all my ducks in a row to do that work with some great surgeons in lacrosse had them do some letters of recommendation uh and then just right at the 11th hour i was uh probably my one of my first rotations fourth year uh in medical school is you know four years long so at that you're you're pretty well locked in to what you're going to do. Um, I was in the morning of, you know, mid morning, uh, in lacrosse scrubbed in with a surgeon. He was, had a whole lineup of cholecystectomy. So gallbladders to do, and that's your bread and butter as a general surgeon. And, you know, two or three cases into it, I thought, I don't think I can do this. <laughs> I, don't, I don't find it interesting. Um, if I do this as a career, I'm going to go nuts. Mm -hmm. And there was a guy across the hall doing cataract surgeries. And while they were turning our, our, our room over in between cases, I poked my head in. I said, Hey, you mind if I watch you do surgery? 
and I saw him do a couple cataracts and I thought, you yeah, know, this is really pretty good. I should maybe think about this as a career. So, um, so wow, that's really cool how you're just like, yeah, Hey, can I come and watch you do a cataract surgery? <laughs> yep. And it's, you know, that, that was great. That's small town, uh, medicine. I mean, that's, you know, a lot of this is kind of outside academia a little bit. This uh, this doctor was not professor. He was just some guy in the community doing surgeries. You know, he was very open and welcoming. But um, but it was uh, that was a yeah that really kind of turned the light on for me. So uh, I've continued to enjoy that that type of work my whole career. Okay. Yeah, and I didn't know you did cataract surgeries. Yeah. And- yeah. I didn't realize that till you did it on, on a family member a few like a month ago, and they said you did something like thirty-eight surgeries in a day. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of eyeballs out there. So it's, um, you know, it used to be when I started practice, uh, and when I did a glaucoma fellowship, there was there was definitely more of a distinction between what a general ophthalmologist did, which was going to be basically cataract surgeries all day long, maybe a few eyelid surgeries, you know, some, some bits and pieces here and there. But, uh, but a general ophthalmologist would basically do cataract surgery, a glaucoma specialist. Sure. You might do some cataracts, but then you also had separate and apart from that, your glaucoma surgery. And there wasn't a huge overlap between the two, but um, over the past 10 to 12 years, there's been a real uptick in interest in what are called MIGS. So that's an acronym. MIGS stands for minimally invasive glaucoma surgery or, you know, micro incisional glaucoma surgery. But these are surgeries that are adjuncts to cataract surgery. And, uh, it's, it, it, none of this would have been applicable to your situation. Mm-hmm. The, uh, but the idea is that up until that point, glaucoma surgery always consisted, all right, well, your pressures are too high, medicine, lasers, those aren't controlling it. So we're just going to say, okay, let's forget about the drain you were born with. Let's just throw that aside. We're going to make a whole new drain for your eyeball. And that was, that was all, th- those were all the options we had for glaucoma surgery. So now there's renewed interest in saying, okay, rather than just throwing out your old drain, let's take a really good look at that in the operating room while we're doing cataract surgery. Let's see if we can open that drain a little bit, clean it up, tune it up, um, rehabilitate it, uh, and stents to open it up. And the, the results have been pretty darn good. This, the, uh, the risk profile is also very encouraging. So, so now as a glaucoma specialist, you actually have to be really adept at cataract surgery and everything that that entails because a lot of treatment for glaucoma involves cataract surgery. So, um, you know, you definitely can't say, okay, look, I'm a glaucoma surgeon, I touch cataracts, uh, that, that does not apply. So you, you really have to cover all your bases here. So sure. in a, in an average doing probably 80% cataract surgery, 20%, uh, you know, 80% cataract surgery, maybe, 75% of that involves uh, one of these MIGs and then 20% of my day is just dedicated glaucoma surgery where I'm, where I'm doing a more typical, uh, uh, you know, kind of full-blown glaucoma surgery. I see. Yeah. So what's the difference between ophthalmologist and optometrist? Sure. Um, so, you know, ophthalmologists and optometrists, so, you know, both eye doctors, um, both work hand in hand. There's a very collaborative atmosphere, at least there, there, there typically is in the community, uh, between ophthalmologists and optometrists. But, um, the difference in education is that as an ophthalmologist, I'm doing four years of undergraduate education followed by four years of medical school where you're doing just general education about the entire body, uh, pharmacology, uh, you know, biology, um, uh, biochemistry, uh, pathophysiology, treatment. 
Um, so you're getting a, a good broad education about the body. And then that's followed by a one year internship. This is again, a general internship where I'm getting out and practicing medicine for a year in an ICU one month or an emergency room one month, radiology one month, but you're getting still a very broad exposure to medicine in general. That might be mixed in with a month, month of ophthalmology here and there, but then that's followed by a three-year ophthalmology residency where then you're focusing specifically on the eye, all right? Um, at the end of that three years, you're, you're ready to be a general ophthalmologist. In my case, I did an, an additional year specific to glaucoma, um, and then at the end of that was done. So after high school, that's a span of 13 years you're working with. Um, optometrists uh, will come out, they do four years of undergrad, same as I did, and then they'll apply to a four-year optometry school uh, and learn and really just jump right into learning specifically about the eye. And that still involves, um, you know, some pharmacology and pathophysiology and all that stuff, but it really is geared specifically to the eye. Um, and there isn't any, you know, uh, surgical or laser training in there. They're looking at, you know, medical treatment of the eye. A lot of it is refractive, things like that. It's, it's primary care um, for the eyes. And then after that, after that four years, they're ready to go ahead and practice as a general optometrist. Now, a lot of them will go on to do an extra one or two years of additional training uh, in, in what they would call a residency that might be in the VA system, or it might be in a you know an ophthalmology practice somewhere. Um, so it's a shorter duration of training, uh, but they really serve as kind of the primary care for the eyes, and then we'll refer to ophthalmologists for you know surgical treatment or subspecialty treatment. Okay. Yep. Um, I have another question. Sure. So. You mentioned how there are people in your family who are ophthalmologists. Uh -huh. um, are they also glaucoma specialists or do they specialize in other different parts of the eye? No. So my, my dad, uh, you know, it, the people I've already mentioned, that's, that's it. So it's my dad, my brother, and me. Um, we're the three ophthalmologists in our family. But uh, my dad and my brother are both general ophthalmologists. Uh, so for my dad, you know, he started practicing in 1979, uh, and at that time it was much more full scope ophthalmology. So he did cataract surgery, but then he also did, uh, some strabismus surgery. So he would realign eyes. He even did some corneal transplants. He did some retinal surgery, which, you know, that's pretty impressive. He even did some orbital surgery. So he really covered the full breadth of general ophthalmology. And um, later in his career, as subspecialists became more prevalent, more common in the community, he stopped doing those surgeries. So, you know, as a cornea specialist would move into town, he would send his corneal surgeries or a retina specialist or a pediatric ophthalmologist. So, you know, later in his career, he kind of zeroed in more on uh, cataract surgeries. Uh, my brother is mostly does cataract surgery specifically does some eyelid surgeries also but he's a pretty busy cataract surgeon so kind of focuses his practice on that um so no glaucoma specialist uh my dad does have glaucoma though so he actually has uh we do have a coma my dad has you know he's been stable he's done really really well but this fairly advanced glaucoma so um he actually stopped doing surgery in the mid nineties because he, he felt that with his, he wasn't, uh, giving his, in, I, I would disagree with this, but he didn't feel he was, uh, he should be doing surgery anymore. And he stopped. But, um, so that, that played a role in my decision to go into glaucoma for sure. Okay. So my next question is, what made you decide to go into glaucoma? Yeah, so I think, well, so some of it was just, you know, preg I, you know, kind of went into ophthalmology. Um, you know, like I said, that was kind of a late last minute decision. 
my brother did give me some input that helped with that decision. He said, look, you know, you're, I know you, you're going to be an excellent ophthalmologist. I think you're going to be a frustrated general surgeon and, uh, gave me some good advice and steered me on the right path. Um, late in my residency, I decided to do a glaucoma fellowship. So you can leave that up in the air. You know, like I said, a glaucoma, uh, ophthalmology residency is about three years long. First year, you're typically just doing a lot of clinic and didactic training. You're learning about the eye. You're, you're you know, learning all the facts, and nuts and bolts of how the eye works. Um, second year, you a little bit of surgery. And I knew I really liked surgery. Uh, and you also start doing some glaucoma surgery, and I knew I liked that. Um, but coming out of my second year into my third year, I, I started thinking about actually joining the family business and joining my dad's practice, my brother's practice. So part of it was actually just knowing that I was joining two general ophthalmologists. I wanted to differentiate myself from them a little bit and uh, add a little more depth to the practice. And the nature of glaucoma is such that it, it really dovetails well with a general ophthalmology practice. So some of it was just very pragmatic looking at it and saying, look, I don't want to step right on my brother's toes. Um, I, I don't want to compete with him directly. I want to come out and, uh, you know, bring a whole new patient population into the, into the clinic. But also a lot of it was just the nature of glaucoma surgery really appealed to me. Um, you know, I saw my dad's kind of journey as a glaucoma patient and knew what he was dealing with and, you know, kind of knew some of the, some of the concerns that he had and fears and, and, what goes along with that treatment. And, um, you know, I felt it was a, an area where I could really uh, kind of make a positive impact on people's lives. Definitely. Yeah. So how long have you been in this field? Um, I started practicing in 2005. So it's, it's hard to believe okay. when I'm on what 17 years now. Interesting. Nice. So how do you discover glaucoma and what symptoms um, in the eye um, pressures should be looked after? Yeah, that's a good question. It's um, so glaucoma is typically discovered on a routine eye exam. All right. So typically the patient doesn't really have any indication they they might have glaucoma. They're just going in for a regular eye exam. Uh, and this is where the optometrists really play a, a big role. The optometrists are doing the bulk of those general eye exams, and it's really on them to, to kind of be on their guard and identify patients who are showing signs of glaucoma. So um, on an eye exam, things that might indicate a patient has glaucoma would be if, if their eye pressure is elevated. So checking the eye pressure is part of a regular eye exam. Um, about 70% of patients who have glaucoma are going to have an elevated eye pressure. And by elevated, we mean a pressure of above about 20 or 21. So eye pressure is tricky. You know, a lot of people know that glaucoma is related to eye pressure, but it's not like blood pressure. You know, with, with blood pressure, you got a group of doctors that come together for years. They say, okay, look, let's look at the data Let's look at what this shows us and let's make a decision on what the definition of high blood pressure is. So they will come out with numbers. They'll say, look, all right, above this number, you have high blood pressure. Below this number, you don't. And it's a very hard and fast rule. Eye pressure is different, all right? So an elevated eye pressure is a risk factor for glaucoma, but it, it doesn't automatically mean you have glaucoma. So what I typically tell people, if I'm asked, all right, what's a regular eye pressure? I'll say, eh, that's a tough question and answer. But if someone walks into my clinic, they have a totally normal exam, no indication they've got glaucoma. I don't get excited unless the pressure is above about 20 or 21. All right. If you're above that pressure, you're far up, far enough outside the normal range that we need to explain why that pressure is elevated and figure out what's going on, figure out if that pressure is going to be safe. All right. But you can go on to develop glaucoma even at a normal pressure. All right, so about 30% of patients with glaucoma have never had a documented pressure over 20 or 21. So even if the eye pressure is normal, you still have to be, you still have to look on your exam and, and you know, be careful to identify patients at risk for glaucoma. So 
apart from the eye pressure, we'll do a, a dilated eye examination. We'll get a good, so meaning we'll dilate the pupil, really get a good look into the back of the eye. And that's to evaluate the retina, looking for things like macular degeneration or a retinal tear or, you know, really, really rare tumors. Uh, but we're also looking at the health of the optic nerve. So you can see the optic nerve. It plugs into the back of the eye like a fiber optic cable. And you're looking at it end on. And you're basically just saying, all right, is that a normal looking optic nerve or is that a goofy looking optic nerve? And if it's a little goofy looking, we'll follow testing to try to explain what's going on. All right. Um, so that's typically what's picked up. Our, our radar is, is raised by either a a weird looking optic nerve or an elevated eye pressure, dig into it a little further with testing, supports the diagnosis, then, you know, we can diagnose the patient with glaucoma. Or we can say, you know, look, you're in a gray area, we don't think you have glaucoma now, but you're the type of person we're gonna wanna watch and maybe every year repeat that testing and make sure we know what's going on. Um, certainly if somebody has really elevated pressures, all right, like if they suddenly develop a pressure that's extremely high, they're going to get symptoms. They're going to get headaches, blurred vision. They might start throwing up, and that's that's a driver to come in and get checked over. Uh, but that's pretty rare. So uh, glaucoma is kind of insidious in most cases. The patient's not really going to know that anything's going on. I see. Oh wow. Yeah. And I like. I thought it was just like, you know, eye pressure. Yeah, it's, I mean, eye pressure is a big part of it. It's, um, you know, it, I don't want to totally discount eye pressure, but the definition of glaucoma actually doesn't really mention eye pressure. It's, it's the definition of glaucoma is a, an optic neuropathy um, that's characterized by a, a specific optic nerve appearance and visual field loss. So it, eye pressure is a risk factor, but it's not, it's not something we've had on as a diagnosis. Interesting. It's a little, it's a little bit nuanced. So are there like different ways to check pressures? Cause I was confused. I have a friend who she wears glasses and, mm -hmm. um, I don't exactly know what her, like if, if she has anything other than needs to wear glasses, but she was like, yeah, they check my pressures and they like blew this air at my eye, you know, to check my pressures. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Right. <laughs> because right. Um, Dr. Schweizo here, he does this little pen thing. And, yep. I hate uh, it. So can you, <laughs> can you like um, tell us the difference and why those different tests are done? Sure. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, the idea is when you're checking eye pressure, the basic concept, there are a number of different ways of doing that. Uh, but, but most of them consist of gently pressing on the eye with an instrument and seeing how hard the eye pushes back. All right. So kind of the gold standard for checking eye pressure is still what we call Goldman applination tonometry. Uh, and that's something that was developed in the last century by Dr. Goldman. Uh, and it consists of anesthetizing the eye. All right. So we put an eye drop. It's got an anesthetic. But it also has a yellowish dye called fluorescein. Yeah. It's a real dye. It's in antifreeze in your car. It's in uh, air conditioning, coolant. And the reason it's there is because if you have a leak in those systems, you can shine a blue light on your engine. And it the, the fluorescein dye, wherever it's leaking, is going to show up really, really bright yellow. So it's really easy. Really? Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's commonly used in those applications. But we technology because when we shine a cobalt blue uh, light on a, a prism that we're pressing on the eye, it lights up that fluorescein dye and we can identify it easily. So without getting too technical, basically, technically, or ugh, without getting too technical, we put that anesthetic and that dye on the eye, and then we very gently press a prism with a flat front, with a specific surface area against the cornea, against the front of the eye, and then we measure how much pressure we have to uh, apply in order to applinate, in order to flatten that surface area, okay? That makes a lot of sense, though. 
Well, kind of, yeah. And then that translates into millimeters of mercury. It gives us an idea of how much pressure is inside the eye. Now, the, the catch is that Dr. Goldman was really, really smart, but he made an assumption that everyone's cornea, the clear part of the front of the eye, that's the part we're pressing on, made the assumption that everyone's cornea thickness, and it's not. All right. So the assumption is everyone's cornea is about 550 microns or just a little over a half millimeter thick. And it's not. Some people have corneas that are maybe 450 microns. Some patients have corneas that are 650 microns. And that does affect our eye pressure reading. So that's become more important. And that's, you know, information into being when I was in training. So it's relatively new. But um, now we'll, we'll get those readings. We'll also get a measurement of the corneal thickness. That helps us put those measurements into context. Um, but that's still the gold standard of measuring eye pressure. Um, in patients where that, that checking eye pressure with Goldman tonometry requires a couple of things, right? Number one, it requires a relatively normal cornea. You can't have a ton of scarring. Um, it can't have a lot of what we call irregular astigmatism. Uh, people have had corneal transplants. Maybe it's going to be difficult to do on those patients. And you also have to have a patient that can relax and, and, and sit there with their eyes open. All right. So not everyone can do that. If somebody has a really, really hard blink reflex, a lot of scarring on their cornea, Goldman applications is not going to work. So we'll use different devices in that case. So we'll use, uh, I tend to rely on what's called eye care tonometry. This is that is handheld. Uh, so Kimberly, in your case, this is what we're using. Uh, but it has a tiny little probe that gets, it's kind of suspended by a, a magnetic field that gets gently shot out and it bounces against the cornea and it's, we're, we're judging how hard that probe bounces back. So that device is able to translate that into millimeters of mercury pressure and it'll, it'll sample the pressure. I can't remember if it's, you know, six, seven, 10 times, but it'll average those pressure readings and give us an idea of what's going on. Is it that handheld pen? It's thing? that the pen is a little different. That's called a Tona pen. Oh. And that is uh, uh, that's the more more pen looking device. These are typically uh, these have been around for a long time. They're commonly used in emergency rooms. They're pretty easy to use. Um, and that uses kind of a pressure transducer in the tip of the pen again to judge how hard that thing is pressing against the eye. And those are reasonably accurate too. Those also sample a number of readings and then average them. So there's kind of a statistical analysis that goes into it. Um, neither one of those are quite as reliable as Goldman when you can get it, but in, in the setting of a lot of scarring or someone who's going to blink really heavily or fight you when you're doing Goldman tonometry, in that setting, those handheld devices are going to be more accurate. Right? Yeah, because I think, because um, I, get, I get my pressures checked, you know, obviously as as you as one would right but i think yep. they use i think they use the handheld one on because i i will fight them it <laughs> yeah exactly and then and then you know at a certain point it's if somebody's squeezing their eyes shut really hard that's gonna give you a falsely elevated reading so it's not worth fighting that you're you're better off going down and using a different instrument uh and then air puff tonometry is is sometimes used that's usually offices. Um, that's reasonable to use if you're screening people for their eye pressure. If you don't have a high degree of suspicion that they have glaucoma uh, or anything else going on. So if you're screening a young, healthy population of patients, it's reasonable to do. You can check an eye pressure. A technician can check eye pressure, having to put an eye drop in. So it's kind of a quick and easy way to get a feel for what their pressure is. It's not super accurate, but it, you know, if you're, if you're, if you have a, a low, you know, pretest probability that someone's going to have an elevated pressure, it's reasonable for screening. So there, there are a couple of other ways of checking pressure too. There are things called Pascal dynamic contour tomography or tonometers um, that are that are less commonly used. Arguably, uh, you know, equivalent to Goldman applination, but um, but the the workhorse of the eye clinic is going to be the Goldman tonometer. That's really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, wow. I know um, the tonal pen used to be used on me, and mm -hmm. uh, they would always try to take my pressures uh, a different way, like with the little, the big 
machine thing. And yeah. I would and I would tell them right away, I need a tonal pen. Yeah. And they'd be like, you know what it's called? I'd be like, I come here every like six weeks. Yes, I know what it's called. <laughs> I have no idea what any of, like, the machines are called when I go get my retinas checked, but I will say I hate the, um, I hate the end, um, because, well, for me, I don't know if, like, every patient goes through this, but for me, um, my chair always gets, like, slid way back, and then... My retina specialist comes in with, like, this big, like, light on his head. And then he takes, like, this, like, big, like, magnifier thing to look in my retina. And no matter how much he dims it down, it hurts and I can't stand it. Yep. That's that's indirect. I'm that light sensitive. Yeah, those are bright lights. And those those retina guys don't mess around, so they're going to get a really good look at you. (laughs) What is that machine called oh, that they use? BIO or binocular indirect ophthalmoscope. So your retina specialist oh. has kind of a uh, some headgear on. It's basically just a fancy flashlight. Uh, but then there, there are some prisms that they're looking through that allow them to get a, a binocular view. In other words, they get a look with both eyes um, using that handheld lens, that magnifying lens. That allows them to adjust the optics of light and and see into the back of your eye and look at the look at the retina. Um, the interesting thing is that the view that that doctor gets uh, is upside down and backwards. Oh, yeah. So it is. It is. Oh wow. So it's weird at first when you're learning to do this stuff. You look in. You're like, all right. You've got to really, really um, consciously flip that image around in your mind. And then at some point in your practice, it's just automatic. You can, your brain learns to read things backwards, and then you're you're off and running. But uh, but yeah, that's what they're doing. So getting it, a really good look with that bright light. Okay, so it's just retina specialists that use those that uses the big fancy flashlight, well, right? Correct. It, everybody uses them. So you know, general ophthalmologists, cataract surgeons, glaucoma specialists, we all opponent the exam, um, but. You know, that, oh. that instrument is used to look at the peripheral retina. So retina specialists, by the nature of their work, they're, they're typically doing that on almost every patient. They're getting a good look at that retina. So they just use it more heavily than, than other doctors do. So whereas in your case, they're pulling it out on every exam, um, you know, in my case, I might component of the exam every single time. I'm going to do it you know, month, once every couple of visits. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, my peripheral retinas are thinning, so... Right, yep, and that's what they really want to get a good look at. Oh, okay. So, what kind of treatments or surgeries can be done to help glaucoma? Well, that's a big question, so... (laughs) (laughs) You know, Um, that's okay. In a basic sense. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you the the Reader's Digest condensed version. So, the... (laughs) In a, in a very, so first off, there are a lot of treatments for glaucoma, all right? And we're never out of treatment. So we're never, there's never a point, and I think, uh, I probably don't say this enough to my patients, um, but there's never a point where I'm going to say, we're done. I'm at the end of my rope. We're at the end of my algorithm. I can't do anything more. Uh, I'm just going to throw my hands up and give up. That never happens, all right? So there are always things that we can do to treat glaucoma, but the, the general premise is you want to do what's required to treat the disease and no more, right? So the, the whole concept of what I do is, is really trying to find that balance point where you're, you're using enough to get the treatment under, or the, get the disease under control, but you're not exposing the patient to undue risk by over-treating them. So um, in, in very broad terms, you know, starting out, we're, there, there are three categories of treatment options. Maybe you could break it to four now, but there are topical medications, right? So there are eye drops that we use. Uh, there are laser treatments that we use. And then there are surgeries that we use, all right? And as a, as a kind of a small fourth category, maybe these micro-incisional surgeries that I mentioned. But, um, but typically starting out, if I have a new glaucoma patient walk into my clinic and we're, we're diagnosing them and we're going to start treatment, 
the vast majority of times I'm reading, uh, I'm reaching for an eye drop, right? I'm telling him, Hey, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start you on one medication. It's going to be, uh, I'll usually start with generic medications and we're going to see how that works to control their pressure. All right. In most cases, that's enough. Um, controlling a patient's glaucoma in most cases means bringing the eye pressure down around 30 to 35%. If we bring it down that far enough, that far from baseline, most studies indicate that we've under good control and with good confidence, we can follow them and, and be confident their glaucoma is going to remain stable. Um, if one medication doesn't, then I'll say, all right, we've got some options. We can add a second eye drop. So the, the first drop that I'll use, uh, there are a number of ways these, these medications work. The first eye drop I use is, is typically what's called a prostaglandin analog. These are the aqueous. That's the, the fluid that builds up and increases the eye pressure. Those drop, drops aqueous to leave the eye. So they, they help to fix the problem. The problem is the drain isn't working properly. They help to get around that and keep things functioning properly. All right. Because that aqueous doesn't just elevate your eye pressure. That aqueous also brings oxygen and nutrients into the front of the eye. So we, we don't, not that we totally dislike aqueous, we just don't like too much of it. All right. So helping it leave the eye allows that aqueous to continue coming in and, and doing what it's supposed to do, but then it also helps it to leave properly, all right, to keep the eye pressure low. But if one drop, if that prostaglandin analog isn't enough, then we'll go on and add more medications. And those medications are geared towards reducing the production of aqueous. So we're, we're using that to, we're kind of coming at the problem from two directions to get better pressure reduction, all right? Or I'll offer them a laser treatment, and that's uh, what's called trabeculoplasty. Uh, that's using a laser. Uh, these days, it's usually a, a type of YAG laser. Uh, to apply a small amount of energy to the drain in the eye, to the trabecular meshwork, to basically clean that drain out and make it work better, all right? We're, we're using that laser to try to fix the problem, try to make that drain wet, work better to get the pressure down. Um, we have a number of different medications we can use. I have a lot of patients that are on one medication, but I also have a lot of patients that are on two, three, four medications. That's not uncommon. Once I get up to three or four medications, three or four different bottles of eye drops, that's a lot to ask of a patient. That's a, a large treatment burden. So, you know, at that point, a lot of those eye drops have to be dosed twice a day. So I might be asking the patient to put in three eye drops in the morning, four eye drops in the evening. You know, that's 14 drops between the two eyes. So when things get to that point, uh, I'll normally introduce the idea of using compounded eye drop. Uh, so there are pharmacies that are independent pharmacies. They will take uh, these, these you know, so combinations of eye drops aren't uh, FDA approved in the U.S. in many cases. They aren't commercially available, but there are pharmacies that will produce compounded drops. They'll take all these different medications, mix them into one bottle, so that that patient can use one drop in the morning, one drop in the evening. And frequently that's gonna work just as well, these different eye drops, uh, but it's going to make life easier on the patient. It's also increasing the likelihood they're gonna be able to do what I asked them to do, all right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that that's a way that we can get around some of the, the cumbersome aspects of treating glaucoma. Um, but, if that's not enough to bring the eye pressure down, or if they're, I have evidence that their glaucoma is getting worse, you know, their visual field is getting worse, the, their peripheral vision or the appearance of their optic nerve, then we'll move on to a surgery, right? Now that might be one of these microincisional surgeries, or it might be just making a whole new drain for the eye. There are a number of ways of doing that. Historically, uh, doing a glaucoma surgery, like when I graduated from my fellowship, we basically had two treatment options. I could do what's called a trabeculectomy, or I could put in a tube shunt. And a trabeculectomy is a way to basically just make a hole in the wall of the eye. It's a little fancier than that, but you're making a little flap in the square in the wall of the eye. You're raising that up. Underneath that, you're making a hole. And then you lay that little flap back down and you suture it into place. So the idea is that that little flap acts as a valve because when we're doing glaucoma surgery, 
we want some of the fluid, you know, we want to relieve some of the pressure. We don't want to relieve all of it. So the, you know, when I'm doing glaucoma surgery, if I talk to people about, or if I'm signing someone up for surgery and I'm talking to them about, you know, why we're doing this, but also what the risks are, most of the bad things that can happen after glaucoma surgery stem from a pressure that's too low. All right. So I want to get the pressure down. I don't want to get it down too far. All right. Too far for most patients is a pressure below about five or six. All right. So when I graduated, you know, I had trabeculectomies, which had a very high risk of too low pressure. They're very effective. Or I had tube shunts, which don't carry a high risk of too low of a pressure, but they also aren't super effective. So, you know, you're frequently, you're kind of picking the lesser of two evils. Uh, now what we have, we've got different devices out. One of the devices I use most heavily is called a, a gel stent. It's called a Zen XDN gel stent. But the idea is it's a, just a tiny little straw. It's about the length of a grain of rice. Uh, it has a very, very small lumen. So the the middle of that straw, the part that the aqueous flows through is very small. So the idea is we just inject that through the wall of the eye. The tip of that straw sits in the front of the eye where the pressure builds up. Tail of that straw sits just under the, what's called the conjunctiva. That's the clear skin that covers the eye, but it just provides a, a bypass, kind of a, a new pathway for fluid to leave the eye. So it's, it's kind of a low tech concept, but it's a very high tech execution. Uh, but that, straw has enough resistance to flow that it'll allow the pressure to come down to maybe five or six and no lower. So it's a very safe surgery, but it's also very effective. So um, I've been really, really pleased with the, with the results of that approach. Interesting. Uh, works really well. It's taken insurance companies a long time to get on board with that, but Aww. which is unfortunate. So, uh, but then with those, so beyond that, if I need more pressure reduction, sometimes I'll turn to what's called diode laser cyclophotocoagulation. That's another type of laser treatment, but that's where we're trying to uh, basically just damage the ciliary body. That's the part of the eye that produces aqueous. Again, we're trying to turn down the fluid production in the eye. So there are a lot of options, but you know, and, and sometimes I have to use all of those options. Uh, but in the end, we'll we'll typically win. We'll get the pressure down to where it needs to be. Perfect. That's we learned a lot today. Um, yeah. I have more questions, yes, but we we're going to run out of time. <laughs> so uh, before we leave, I want to give you some bragging rights because ever since I saw you, I've only had one laser surgery to correct my glaucoma. And beforehand, I needed like a lot. Yeah. Um, and I've had glaucoma since I was three, so that's saying a lot. And um, your eye drops, you know, you put me on eye drops. And I've been stable since 2012. And in the a few um, eye doctors before you, I had the second thickest file in the office. Yeah, I believe And, <laughs> and um, so... I've been stable and I was so happy at our last appointment because I had my pressure be 10 and 13 and I can't remember the last time I got to 10, like literally. Well, yeah. Hey, thank you. I appreciate your stability. <laughs> well, and, and you know, like you, like you mentioned, you've, you've had a very, very long, your story is a very, very long one. Uh, it's got a lot of twists and turns and I, I kind of came into it close, probably, you know, in the final couple chapters there. So, uh, I can't, I can't necessarily take credit, but it's, um, but yeah, fortunately you haven't required a, a whole lot of hands. Things have been going okay. So in your case, the more hands off we stay, the better things are going to be. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. And thank you for coming on. This was, this was great. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much for, for, for joining us and for being here. I definitely learned a lot that I didn't know about glaucoma and, uh, not a problem. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And keep up the good work. You, you too. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you so much. All right. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye. Yep. Bye-bye. All right, guys, that was Kurt. Shuiso. Yep. Shuiso? 
Okay. I don't want to butcher his last name. Um, we definitely learned a lot about glaucoma. And to be honest, there is a lot more to learn about glaucoma because it's, you know, there's so many things. It's not very, it's not a, it's not, um, you know, treatment is obviously not, not yeah. simple. Yeah. Right? Can I, can I say that? But, uh, yeah, that was our, our podcast guest. I hope that you learned a lot like I did. And Kimberly, thank you so much for putting this together and for You're inviting welcome. him. I always thought it was kind of funny that I would go, I didn't know he had other um, family members in the practice at the same office. So I would like go and be like, yeah, I'm, I would say my name and be like, yeah, I'm, um, Dr. Shriso, and they're like, okay, which one? I'm like thinking, what are you talking about? So I always had to say, Kirk Shriso, so they, so they knew which doctor it was. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I thought that was really, really cool how he was like, oh, it's actually not uncommon. I'm like, oh, okay. Right. I mean, my ophthalmologist, who's a retina specialist, married an ophthalmologist and I don't know what she specializes in like I told him but I just thought it was really interesting how it isn't uh, uncommon for it to run in the yeah, family. Yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah. Alrighty folks, well this concludes our episode. You guys know where to find us. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, and you can listen to us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Kimberly, do you want to throw yeah, out that email? Um, email us at thisiswhatblindlookslikepod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Yep, so slide into our DMs, send us messages about topics or guests that we can have on. Or if you want to be a guest on our show, let us know.